Let's turn together in the book of Psalms to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And I want to begin, before we read this psalm, I want to begin with a word of prayer. I want to welcome those that are watching online as well. And I want to begin with a word of prayer for God to bless this time in his word. But also, uh, I've got a number of things I'm sure you do as well on your heart. And um, uh, one of those things continues to be uh, what we talked about at length last week as we draw down in the next couple of days in Afghanistan. Uh, I know all of our hearts are just saddened by what happened to the Marines. And I understand the terrorist threats are high. So uh, that's just that's just weighing on my heart, and I'm sure it's on your heart as well. So I wanna I wanna pray for that. We also have a Category Four hurricane uh, barreling in on Louisiana, so um, we just have a lot of things going on. Plus, we've got the flooding in our own area. So let's lift up these needs as we go to God uh, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, with some burdens on our heart. Uh, Lord, we're grateful as we sing these beautiful songs about what you've done for us. And we're grateful that one of the blessings that comes with our Savior Jesus is that we can come into your throne of grace with the needs that are on our heart. And we do that, Father. We, we lift up, Lord, our nation. We lift up all that's going on in Afghanistan. We lift up those that are vulnerable um, both U.S. citizens and uh, Afghans who are vulnerable to terroristic evil threats. And we just pray for safety. We just pray that you will keep safe all those that are there, that you will foil the plans of the, those who would do harm. And we just pray for safety, especially in these next couple of days as we actually draw down a military presence there, God. We just lift up that situation to you. Father, we lift up our nation as, and those that live in the Louisiana Gulf Coast areas, Lord, as this uh, hurricane is, is threatening uh, historic damage. And we pray for safety for lives more than anything else. We pray, Father, you will protect those there. We pray that, Lord, no life will be lost. We would ask that, Lord. We also pray maybe, God, even for mercy that this would not hit as hard as they're saying it will hit. God, we just look to you. You are bigger than hurricanes, Father. And we look to you, ask you for mercy and grace for those who are uh, directly affected by this hurricane, Lord God, and for our nation to be able to come alongside and help them. And we continue to pray for those in our local area that help would be there to help them with the flood and the damage that's been done. God, we just pray you help them to be restored uh, with all that they lost from the flooding in this area. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. We pray for uh, just uh, your Holy Spirit to minister life and grace to us, Lord God. Also to encourage, Lord, and I pray particularly for those who maybe are discouraged, whose hearts might be flagging a little bit or their faith might be struggling a little bit. I pray that, Father, you use this beautiful psalm, this honest psalm, to encourage their hearts and give them direction, Lord. I pray that you will speak through this time in your word. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Psalm 73 
This is a psalm of Asaph. We looked at uh, another psalm, Psalm 77 by Asaph. Asaph was a, a leader and a chief musician in David, King David's court. Psalm 77, if you remember, he went from lament or complaining to God to a confidence in God. There's a shift in tone in that psalm, and we find the same shift of tone in Psalm 73. We're going to read the first section, and then we'll finish by reading the last section. And in the center is one verse that's an important cautionary hinge verse that gives us an important caution that we're going to look at as well. But let's begin with verse 1 through verse 14. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So Asaph begins this psalm by affirming what we, what we like to read in the psalms. God is good. God is good to his people. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But then he immediately confesses honestly that he's had his own struggles in his heart. He's got stuff going on in his heart that is troubling to him. His faith is struggling. He says, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. This morning as I was, I, I poured a cup of coffee and I was walking upstairs with that cup of coffee and my foot caught on the landing as I was about to go upstairs and it caught. And for a second, I almost went headlong with this hot coffee. And uh, I was so thankful that I caught myself. My feet almost slipped. But that's not what he's talking about here. I mean, the worst that would have happened is I would have spilled my coffee, which is pretty bad, but not too bad. And I may have gotten a little bit banged up, but that's the worst that could happen. That is not what I Asaph is describing. I picture Asaph like one of those hikers who's hiking treacherous trails high up in the mountains. And there's a narrow path and a sheer drop off. And as Asaph is making his journey of faith on this treacherous moment, his foot nearly slips. His foot nearly stumbles. 
he almost loses his faith in God. That's what he's talking about. He almost loses his faith in God. And verse 3 tells us why. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is looking out on the community and he is seeing really evil, wicked people doing really well. Their lives are going well. They are doing a lot of harm and their life is going smoothly. And that doesn't make sense to Asaph. That doesn't make sense to his faith because he knows that God will recompense. God will hold accountable those who are evil. And yet these people are abusing people. They're committing injustices. They wear pride like a necklace. They wear violence like a garment. They love to hurt the innocent, especially if it gets them ahead in life. And then they brag about it. And they mock God. And Asaph's faith taught him this should not happen. God, where is God? And he's waiting for God to lower the boom. And years go by. And nothing happens. Decades go by. And the the hammer never falls. The boom never falls. They get richer and richer. But it's not just that their life is increasing in prosperity. Everything goes well for them. It goes easy for them. Things are just coming to them. They're not even unhealthy. They have health. No pangs until death. They're living good lives. They're living large. And what Asaph looks and he sees this, and the more they... They prosper. The more they do injustice, the more they hurt people to get ahead in life, the more they step on other people to get higher up the rungs, the better their life gets. And the more that happens, the more they brag about it, and the more they mock God. I don't think God even knows what's going on down here. Can he even possibly know what's going on down here? And so what's happening, I think what verse 10 describes is something that happens to powerful people when everything is going their way. There are people who attach to them and, and, and will not say a word against what they're doing. They, they identify, they hitch their wagon with them, hoping some of that good fortune comes that way. And so he says, even his people, they find no fault in them. Not because there isn't a lot of fault, but because they don't want to shake up their own gravy train. And so all this is going on, and Asaph is looking at that, but that's not all he sees. He sees good, ordinary people living under this burden of life, trouble and toil, affliction, maybe physical issues going on, never having barely enough, and life is hard for them. And it feels to Asaph as if God is on the side of the wicked, and he's opposed to those who are trying to do it right. Asaph says this in verse 14, all day long, all day long I have been stricken. By who? 
it feels like by God. God is striking me. And every morning I wake up, I feel like I've been rebuked by God. And yet they are being blessed and prospering. It does not make sense to Asaph's faith. And his feet almost slipped. He began to envy the wicked. He began to want what they had. Verse 13, Asaph says, all in vain. That word vain means empty. All in emptiness have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Their hearts are dirty with evil and their hands guilty with sin. And they're living full lives. I have kept my heart clean and my hands innocent. And I feel like my life is empty. This is a crisis of faith for Asaph. What he believes and what he sees are not matching up. And his feet almost slipped. I want to pause here for a moment because in recent years, at least in my view, it, it seems like more professing Christians than ever are experiencing a crisis of faith. Uh, I think there may be different reasons for that, but I, but I think that there's, there's a... a, a prevalence of, of professors in Christ having a crisis of faith. And if, if that's you, I want to encourage you. When, you. when you hit that place where doubt is louder than faith, where it doesn't make sense, you're looking at something in your life and it doesn't make sense, you pray God's blessing and it seems like things get worse. I want to encourage if that's you and you're at that place with a crisis of faith. I want to encourage you to start where Asaph starts here. He starts by being honest. He lays it out. He lays it out to God. And he lays it out to us. There are times when we can, what we see going on in our lives can lead us to question our faith we can ask the question, why? Why is this? Why is that allowed to happen? Why did this happen? Why didn't that happen? And those questions, that's really what Asaph is asking. Why? Why would they be prospering and people trying to follow the Lord be going through such hardship? If that's you, a good first step is to be honest about that struggle, with God especially, but also with good friends. Asaph has more steps to share, but that's a good first step. And if you know someone who's going through a crisis of faith, I just want to encourage you to uh, don't panic and don't lose hope. Be a loving friend. Be a steady witness in their lives. More than ever, when someone's faith is adrift, they need the steadfast anchor of someone who loves them and who holds on to their faith tightly and doesn't drift with them. And pray for them. Pray for them. Asaph is having a crisis of faith here. 
But something is about to happen that's going to completely change his perspective. But before he gets there, we come to this cautionary verse, verse 15, which is kind of a hinge from one section to the next. He says this. Now remember, he's just laid out, I've got these doubts. I've got these why questions. I've got like, what's going on? My feet almost slipped. They're being blessed. They're wicked. The more wicked they are, the more they seem to be blessed. The more righteous we try to be, it seems the more God is against us. And then he says this, if I had said, I will speak thus, I will say these things, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph has all these serious doubts, these questions going on in his heart, but in the midst of it, he knows he needs to be careful. He realizes if he vomits everything that's in his heart to everybody, he could do some serious damage. He could undermine the faith of the next generation if he just publicly vomits all this stuff out. He could damage their faith in a way they might never recover from. And so we come to a delicate balance because I just said, be honest, right? I just said, be honest. If you're struggling with that, be honest. And now I'm saying, be careful. So put the two together, be honest and be careful who you're honest with. Verse 15 reminds us, we want to be honest. We also want to be wise about what we say and to whom we say it. Sharing these kinds of doubts and questions with God and with a strong, mature, strong, mature friends is a great good step, first step. But to declare these questions publicly and just kind of get it out there to everything with brothers and sisters who are all over the place, including those who are weak in their faith, those who are new in their faith, those who are trying to figure it all out, and they're just kind of there trying to assess what this thing is. When they hear that, it literally can do, it can push them over the edge. My feet almost slipped, but you might have Brother Joe or Brother Sally going over the edge because you share all this thing with everybody. I don't know if God's real anymore. I don't know if Jesus is real. I'm so, be careful, be careful. You may regain your footing, but they may not. There's a word of caution here. I think it's especially to parents, but really to all of us. There are always those who are newer in their faith, whose faith is more tender and, and weaker. The Bible says there are those who have stronger faith, those who have weaker faith. And so, especially, I want to share a word of caution to parents, but this is to all of us. Be careful how much negativity you share in front of your kids, especially about Christian whatevers, everything Christian. If, if we run down other Christians or other churches in the hearing of our kids, if, if, if we are gossiping about people in front of our kids, we shouldn't be gossiping about other people anyway. Amen? But we certainly should not be gossiping in front of our kids. I mean, I've been a pastor over 30 years. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in the church. And one of the things we've tried very carefully, when we gossip about people in the church, we try real hard to make it happy gossip not cut down gossip. Our kids did not grow up hearing 
brother Joe did this, and I can't believe Aunt Sa or Sister Sally did that. And we have to be careful what we just kind of put out there. If we constantly question the sincerity of anyone who doesn't see things the exact way we do, if we air every dispute, every conflict we have with at the dinner table with our kids, we might think we're being honest and we're being real, but the next generation may interpret that, that this whole thing is phony. I've gone to church. I've seen what people say about each other. I've seen what they do to each other. The backstabbing, the gossip, the, the conflict. The, this side of the room won't talk to that side of the room. I've seen all that. And listen, I do not blame them for saying this thing isn't real. It's, that's not true. We could get into all kinds of reasons why that's not true. But when faith is weak, they don't know how to interpret that except to say it, it's there's, there's, there's not a sense of the reality of the love of Christ here, so it must all be phony. And they go over the ledge. And it doesn't matter that you regain your footing and, and six months later you're in a completely different place because they may not regain their footing. We are told to be careful not to stumble a younger or weaker brother or sister. So that's a that's a cautionary. We need wisdom. We need wisdom. You don't stuff it all inside. You go to God. You go to a strong brother or sister. And you can share. But don't just kind of throw it up all over the place there. That's a caution for all of us here. Now in the midst of this crisis of faith, something happens to Asaph that we read about starting in verse 16. So he's all this crisis of faith. He's asking the question why. He doesn't see what God is doing. He can't understand it all. And then in verse 16, something happens. But when I thought how to understand this, how do I process this? It seemed to me a wearisome task. He was exhausted emotionally. He was depleted emotionally. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph was trying to figure it all out, discouraged and weary. He entered the sanctuary, and he met God there. And God met him there. And God broadened his perspective. God changed his perspective on what was going on. He saw things through a different lens. Asaph saw what he had been missing the end of the story. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He saw their akarit. We've talked about that. The Hebrew word for the final end. The akarit. 
Asaph saw the end of the story, and suddenly he did not envy them anymore. Our lives are stories. Our lives are stories. They're not just an accumulation of random situations that happen. Our lives are stories. Precious stories. Precious to God. But we can't fully understand the story until we know the end of the story. The Akharit. When the Bible talks about the end times, it's talking about the last days, the Akharit of history as we know it. And it's interesting, here's what it describes in the Akharit of history. It describes a time when mankind will attempt to make or create the best world possible in a humanistic spirit. In the spirit of humanistic pride, we will make the best world possible and they will succeed in creating the worst world, the darkest world, the most demonic world ever in history. They will, in their pride, be out for the best, shooting high, increasing in prosperity, increasing life is easy, just like these, and then the end will come. People will be full as the last days come, and I don't know, we could be in the last days now. But people will be full of humanistic pride. We are getting there. We are doing this thing apart from God. Who needs God? We are getting there. We are creating a beautiful, wonderful, humanistically raising up humans as the ultimate utopian world. As they're filled with humanistic hope, that's when the end will come. They will cry out, peace, peace, and sudden destruction will come upon them. At the very moment when they think we've arrived, destruction will suddenly come upon them. That's the Akharit of human history. We do not understand the story until we understand the end of the story. I want to share an illustration with you. I want you to imagine that your block where you live gets a notice that five homes on your block are going to be randomly chosen to receive a week-long free, all-expenses-paid cruise in a luxury liner. And you are hoping you are chosen. Every day for the next week, you go out to your mailbox and you check that mailbox, and there's no ticket there. There's no announcement that you've won. You see the Smiths on the left go out to their mailbox one day and they're whooping and hollering and you know they got one. Five homes and there's only six homes on your block, you know, whatever. You One day you see the Smiths on your right go out to their mailbox and they're whooping and hollering and high-fiving each other and you know they got one. The week goes by, you don't get the announcement. You don't get the ticket. You're, you're the home that doesn't get that cruise. Think about how disappointed you might be. Think about how you might say, why, why? 
Why couldn't I have gotten that? We could use it more than the Smiths. But would it make a difference in your sense of disappointment if the date I'm talking about that this cruise left was April 12th or April 10th, 1912? And the name of this cruise was the Titanic. Would it affect your disappointment at all to know you were the one who didn't make that cruise? We can't understand the story until we understand and know the end of the story, the Akarit. When Asaph enters the sanctuary, he sees what the Bible tells us all along. For a time, God allows sometimes evil to happen. Sometimes he punishes it right away. Sometimes he lets it go on and on. You see, for us, we think 10 years, 5 years, a year, a week is way too long. 20 years, 50 years is way too long. To God, 50 years is less than a second to us. And sometimes he lets the wicked climb really high. Because as Asaph says, when their foot slips, they fall really low. They fall really hard. Asaph enters the sanctuary of God and he realizes that while God may allow this injustice to happen, he may allow the wicked to prosper for a time, the day will come, the time will come when God will set things right. No injustice will be left unanswered. No evil will be left unpunished. We can't understand the story until we know the end of the story. Now, these are not happy verses that we just read. Asaph finds no joy in seeing their Akharit, but he does find a new perspective. Their injustices, their oppressions, their violence, their proud mockery will be turned suddenly to ruin and terror. It says they will be swept away by terrors. It will happen so fast. There will be no time to change their mind. No time to, to make any changes. No time even for repentance. It will be going from all this mockery and laughter and increase and prosperity to sudden destruction swept away. And not just destruction, but with terror. And no opportunity to do anything to save themselves or change their destiny. Asaph sees their end and he wants no part of it. No part of it. And Asaph sees his own life through a different lens as well. Let's continue reading in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That is his way of saying I was an idiot. I was an idiot. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's their ocarid. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell 
of all your works. Let me just, before we get into some of what he's saying, let me just say what he wraps up here is sharing. Here's the difference. Remember we talked about sharing honestly with some private friends and with God, but not vomiting it. You said, well, but isn't he here? No, he's pointed this so he can tell the whole story. So someone young in faith is reading this. They're not just reading the, you know, why isn't God? They're reading the whole story. And his goal is to tell of the works of God to build their faith up. So if their feet are near the edge, he pulls them back. Now what Asaph does is remember earlier he said, I feel like my life is stricken. Every morning I wake up, I feel like God's rebuked me every morning. But now he sees the truth. No, no, God is always with me. I am always with God. He is holding my right hand. God is guiding me. Yeah, sometimes things are rough. Yeah, sometimes the story gets tough and hard and difficult. But God is holding my right hand. Here is the truth about faith. Faith is not like a lucky rabbit's foot that you rub and everything goes good in life. Faith is so much bigger than that and so much better than that. Faith roots our story in God. It roots our story in God, the good, the hard, the sad, the happy, the questions, the certainties, all of those things, all that is your story, it's rooted in God and Faith connects it to the redemptive purposes of God for your life so that the story, all of it, is redeemed and good because God is in the center of it. We can say with Asaph, when my heart and flesh fail, that's, that's like, man, I'm giving out. I got nothing left. I'm discouraged. I'm despondent. He could say, when my flesh and my heart give out, God is the strength of my heart and my flesh and my portion forever. He gives me strength to live another day, and he gives me the reason to live. He is my portion. You could take everything in life away from me. I would still have everything in life because I've got the Lord, and you can't take him away from me. That's what Asaph comes to. That's faith. Faith is not, boy, I hope everything goes good. Let me rub this faith genie bottle a little bit and get my wishes. That is not faith. Faith connects our story, good, bad, and ugly, to God. And Asaph sees that God is with him. And then he sees the akarit of his own life. In verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. This faith journey, you're with me, you're guiding me, you're holding my hand, you're counseling me. And then he says, and afterward, Akarit, you will receive me to glory. Asaph sees the final end for him is actually the forever beginning because God is going to receive him into glory. And I want to share one last thing in our last moments here about the Akarit. On the last day, God is going to do more than just right what's wrong and repair what's broken. God will reverse the harm done. Reverse the evil, the injustice, the breaking that's done. 
I read this illustration in Paul Miller's book, The J-Curve, and I want to share it with you as a handle for us to understand what, what this reversing means. I want you to think about the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the trial. The Jewish leaders, religious leaders, held a trial. The question in front of them, is Jesus a blasphemer or is he the son of God? He's one or the other because he's claiming to be the son of God. They have two options, son of God or blasphemer. They hold a trial. They declare the verdict. He is a blasphemer. He is blaspheming the name of God and they, they issue the verdict and then they issue the sentence, death on a cross, the curse Cursed is he who hangs on a cross. They knew they could kill him by stoning him, but if he hung on a cross, his name would be cursed forever. Verdict, sentence. Now listen, by three o'clock that day, Jesus was dead. Another court could have come along and said, we are reversing the sentence. We believe Jesus was the son of God. It was an unfair sentence. They could reverse the sent or the, the verdict, but they could not reverse the sentence. Jesus was already dead. They could declare him innocent of that, but they could not re reverse the sentence because Jesus was dead. But God reversed the verdict saying, no, 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 this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he reversed the sentence, raising it up to life, resurrection life, saying, that's my boy. Only God can reverse the evil done. And he will on that day. He will make all things new again. I want to call the band up as we close this morning. When Jesus receives us into glory, and I love that, he says, afterward you will receive me to glory. Isn't that a beautiful thought that one day afterward, when we finish this story, the Lord will receive us into glory. That is made possible only through Jesus's death and his resurrection. And on that day, all the wrongs and all the pain, all the suffering of our lives, all the stains, all the regrets of our sin will not only be forgiven, but in some redemptive way, they will be reversed. Our final end, our akharit, will be glory. And I don't know. But I'm not sure we're going to want to change one word of our story on that day. Because we will see how God redeemed and reversed for our good and glory, the akharit. So when we come to a crisis of faith, and maybe someone is in that place, crisis of faith, I want to encourage you to be honest with God, be honest with strong friends whose faith will not be shaken by your shaking of faith. And listen here, don't try to figure out the whys without God. 
Don't try to figure out why's and why this, why that, and what's going on without God, because you can never, ever do that and actually come to the right conclusion. The story can't be understood without God. You can't understand the story without God. He is the center of everything. He is the author and he is the center of our faith and our story. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's our faith. That's what we believe. And we can stand assured because our faith is built on Jesus' promises. And Jesus never lies. I just felt the Lord impress on my heart to uh, a word of encouragement for those who might be feeling particularly discouraged. That discouraged about where your story is right now. Despondent about where your story is right now. And maybe uh, feeling the weight of guilt because you know you have made choices that have brought your story to where it is right now. And I, I just want to pray for you and encourage you that God is bigger than our mess-ups. The story he writes when we come to him with our life. You see, the, the big difference isn't that these evil people are horrible and Asaph's a great guy. The big difference is Asaph went to God and they refused God. That's the big difference. So go to God. If you feel like your life has become detached from the Lord, reconnect your life to the Lord. He's there. He's with you. He wants to hold your hand, guide you, and wherever you are, he's got a redemptive, good path for you to go from this day forward that will result in a beautiful akharit to his glory. Because it's him, not you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, our stories would all be of the worst type of tragedies if it were not for your love, your compassion, and your son Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you entered our story so you could bring us into yours. And we thank you for that. Now I pray that faith will rise up in every single person who's hearing this. Faith to, to come back to you, draw close to you, bring the questions to you, share honest confession with you, but above all, to meet you in the sanctuary, to see God in the story, because that makes all the difference. That changes everything. And I pray you will meet them where they are, and you will guide them and hold their hand Lord, when it's sin that's brought us to a place, help us to turn from that sin and turn to you, God. Once again, reconnecting our story to you through faith. And know that Jesus' blood is powerful enough to forgive the, the darkest and deepest of sins. Lord, you have a redemptive and good purpose for each of our lives. Let us believe that. Let us live in the good of that every day and give you the glory for all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.